the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Wow, what a passage. I wonder, and this, this sounds like a criticism but isn't, I wonder how well you listened to that passage. It's the kind of one where you actually want to shut your brain off a little bit and just let it wash over you because that's easier, right? Easier to not really hear the story. This passage is not easy. Tonight is not going to be a light time. And most of me wants to start by saying sorry for that. (laughs) But actually, I'm not sorry. Because tonight we are going to spend some time in reality. In the brokenness of this world. In the abuse of power. The abuse of people. And the silence of God. This is and should be an uncomfortable place. A heavy place. But it is still a real and a necessary one. So I want to start with a heads up that what I have to say for the next 15-20 minutes has no moments for jokes. No funny anecdotes as we go along. I can't do it. It doesn't do this passage justice. But if we together are really going to get into the nuts and the bolts of this part of history, it's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be an easy venture. It's just not that kind of story. But it is a story of a God who sees and knows the pain. Who sees and knows the brokenness. Who sees and knows the realities. And therefore it's a story, however hard, we need to know. At the start of this passage, it would be easy to have a kind of Disney movie style view of the selection process for a new queen if you don't think about it too hard. It feels a bit Prince Charming in search of a bride. A harmless beauty pageant, right? No. It is none of those things. To put it bluntly, this is state-sponsored abuse. This is countless girls taken from their families in the name of one man's pleasure. A search which would last for four years and take hundreds of girls away from their lives. Whether chosen or not, they would never return to the place they'd come from. In that society, they were forever tainted by this. This is also not just a thing of then. 
that we can neatly kind of package up in a box of over there's a problem. This is the reality of the world that we still live in. Where people are sold and enslaved for the power and the pleasure of others. And we need to know that. And we need to be broken by that. If I'm honest, this is the first time that coming to prepare for church has made me cry many times. And that's what this should do. If we really want to understand this bit of scripture, we have to be willing for it to break us too. So I haven't pulled my punches here. This series is called Resisting Empire. The empire, I think, is quite clear to see in Esther T. But where is the resistance? Where's the protest to what we see unfolding? Everything inside me, and I imagine inside you, wants desperately in this chapter a new voice to join the dialogue. We hear, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins, and you want an interjection. No, they don't belong to you. Esther had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Interjection. That is not her value or her worth. In the evening, the girls were taken to the king. Interjection. This is abuse. We want to hear a voice that says, no, stop. This is wrong. And verse after verse, we are left with silence. The author doesn't go through the list of events and atrocities that happen and dismantle them. They just record them as simple history. Why? I think because silence is powerful. Silence says a lot. Because really the voice of interjection that we want here is the voice of God. And God is not to be found in this. By leaving us only with silence, there's no room to excuse the king's behaviour with, well, it was a different culture, a different time. There's no room to blame God for something done by human hands. Something so far from the kingdom of God. This is the fall from heaven to earth that is so often used to describe the book of Esther. This is the silence not of God's complicity but of God's condemnation. Because nobody could have read the law and the prophets 
and not seen how far this is from God's intention for life and for leadership. Sitting on our side of history, nobody could have encountered Jesus without seeing how far this is from God's intention for life and for leadership. That is why this heavy, hard chapter demands our attention. God, I think, is silent because he had already spoken. God is silent because he had already set out time and time again his design for his people and for his creation. And this is not it. But that leaves us with questions. Where in our culture, our society, is God silent? Where are the areas that are so far from the design of the Creator, so far from the Kingdom of God, that all that is left is resounding silence? How are we responding to them? But in the midst of the silence, there is still provision. Even though we don't hear his voice, we should still see the hands of God. God provides people and situations that even in the deepest of wrongs and darkness allow glimpses of his character, his kingdom and his plan. But there's a really tricky balance to strike here. One that I'm not sure we'll ever get quite right. Because without a shadow of a doubt, God was able to work through the actions of Esther and Mordecai. As part of the people of God who had stayed behind in Persia, to some extent they are his hands at work. But we need to be really careful how we think about that. It's not as simple, I don't think, as God placing Esther on the throne as queen. I'd argue that verse 17 couldn't actually be further from that. It reads, Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. She won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Because of her beauty, a jealous, dangerous king puts a crown on her head. To make himself feel powerful. 
I don't think this is the moment for celebration that sometimes it's dressed up to be. I don't think we should be lulled into this kind of false sense of security and comfort that this is God's best for Esther. As if only she were important in the hundreds of girls sent before the the king. As if her beauty alone solved all problems. Instead, I think we still have to stand in the place of anger and acknowledgement that this is still wrong. That even though Esther ends up as queen, that doesn't make this okay. Because I think only from that place can we reach a better understanding and be able to say, and yet, even there, even in the darkness, even in the mess, God was sovereign. Not because of it, but even in it. God is able to work his purposes through even the darkest of human methods. But this doesn't mean that he has created or condoned them. And I think if we shy away from declaring and acknowledging the human methods we see in scripture and in the world around us, we take away from the full power of God. We take away from the full power of God to work despite and in and through the messes that we have made. What we see in this passage repeatedly is a reminder that even in the chaos, the wrongs, the mess, God still works and his power is not diminished. For Esther, after the death of her parents, there was a new family connection once more. In Mordecai, there is a man who steps into the father figure role and cares and loves her. Despite the situation for Esther in the harem and in the king's court, there is provision of people. There is provision of wisdom on who to listen to, what counsel to take and how to behave. Although I would argue far from the ideal path for her life, and not necessarily God's plan for her life, God still works through it all and finishes with her in a position of power that allows her to work for the good of others. First, in his book on Esther, called it Providence in the Passive Voice. That when we read Esther, 
We shouldn't look just for what is said, but what isn't said. That when we can't hear the voice of God, we need to look for his hands. That sometimes that comes in the kind of the form of unfolding events, unexpected moments, and the voice and the actions of others. And we see that clearly through the kind of add-on that happens at the end of this passage. There's a kind of shift right at the end that you, it's a bit of a gear shift you don't necessarily see coming, where suddenly we leave the palace and we go to the gate. And we see Mordecai in the definition of right place, right time. Provision in the passive voice. Silent provision that enable him to hear a conversation, to tell Esther who's now right place, right time. And then the unfolding events from there are, to be honest, what should bring you back next week for the next chapter on what that looks like. Because in the midst of political intrigue, uncovered plots, we should be noticing the hands and the work of a faithful and caring God in the midst of the mess. There's a famous William Temple quote that says, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. Esther makes no mention of prayer. But the point is very similar. When God's people are faithful to him, they build their lives on him. As we see Mordecai and through his instruction, we are led to believe Esther as well, following God's law and kingdom. We see his provision at work, even in the midst of the darkest methods even in the midst of the things that are completely at odds with God's kingdom. Where do we need to see more of that? This passage is not one that leaves us with many answers. It doesn't give us clear directions to take away and put into place tomorrow morning. Instead, it takes us by the hand and drags us into the messy, broken world. I think it drags us into a place where we are forced to admit that we have many questions, but we want to keep our eyes fixed on the sovereignty of God. Even in the silence. And that we want to look for and be shaped by silent protest and silent provision. This is a chapter, and Esther as a whole is a book that screams, this is not how it was meant to be. We need to be that scream too.
to be the voice for the voiceless, the power for the powerless. We have to be that screen too. This is not what it was meant to be. So I wonder, when God is silent, what are we speaking? Are we willing to be the people and to be in the situations through which he speaks?